Today's Talking Politics Guide is with Aaron Rapport, who is an expert on American foreign policy and the psychology of war, and he's going to be talking to us about nuclear weapons. These Talking Politics Guides are brought to you, as ever, in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. To start at the beginning, when the United States developed its nuclear program, what did they think it would be used for? Well, initially, the United States developed its atomic weapons program with a very specific goal in mind, which was ending World War II. And I wasn't quite sure who the target was going to be, if it was going to be Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. We know how history turns out. Uh, the targets are Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's also historical debate over whether or not the decision to use bombs against Japan was in part a kind of long-term signaling device to the Soviet Union saying, this is kind of the new world order. This is the way that the military is going to work from now on. But it's also worth noting that the Truman administration after World War II embarked on a serious campaign to internationalize nuclear materials and nuclear weapons, which is to say that no state would have had unilateral possession over them. So they were originally designed to be used. What changes to the logic when you go from one power having them to two powers having them? So the U.S. nuclear monopoly gets broken up in 1949 when the Soviets test their first weapon, sometimes called Joe One, after Joseph Stalin. And that actually doesn't do a terrible amount to the logic of using nuclear weapons, which is to say that the Eisenhower administration, even though the Soviet test is done under the Truman administration, when the Eisenhower administration comes into power, they adopt nuclear doctrine called massive retaliation, which is to say that Soviet aggression and provocation anywhere, regardless of the level, at least in theory, right, military provocation and aggression is going to be met with nuclear weapons as a response. So basically, the ideology of massive retaliation, if you want to call it an ideology, is one where nuclear weapons are essentially huge munitions, right? They're no different from any other munition, right? We would still, we wouldn't call them unconventional weapons in that sense, right? They're just basically big artillery pieces that have greater effects than high explosives. How do we get from that to mutually assured destruction? Is there a, a point where the logic shifts? Or is this a gradual process? Well, there's a definite point where the logic shifts, because part of the problem with the idea of massive retaliation is that, as General Maxwell Taylor says, right, you have two choices vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. You can accept defeat on the ground in what we would now call conventional warfare, because the Soviets simply have more divisions in Europe than NATO does in the 1950s. Or you can possibly end civilization as we know it by using nuclear weapons. Those are two pretty unpalatable choices. And this leads to the Kennedy administration, which takes over in 1960, moving away from massive retaliation and getting towards something called roughly flexible response, which is to say that the United States needs to be able to deter and respond to Soviet military threats at every single level of the escalation spectrum, because it's simply not credible to say that the United States is going to risk World War III for every Soviet military provocation. 
that view that this could lead to the end of human civilization because you cannot undo these effects once you've used these weapons apart from anything else the radiation will last for a long long time when does that kind of gain popular consciousness when do people start to think that there's got to be a kind of taboo against the use of these weapons because it is unthinkable to use them well i mean you see already in 1950s sci-fi horror kind of stuff all this new penetration of atomic culture if you will right and mutations from radioactive experiments so this is getting popularized pretty quickly and you have pretty high profile think pieces published by people in the truman administration after world war ii justifying the use of atomic weapons. So there is debate going on about both the morality of these weapons as well as simply kind of more low culture, popular stuff in which people are, are afraid of them. And you also have to remember because the size of the United States and because the nuclear radiological effects of nuclear weapons are not well understood in the 1950s, you're testing these things above ground in places like Nevada. So you have ranchers who have kind of firsthand experience with this. We're not exactly talking cows with, you know, fins and gills, but high levels of, of cancer and, and other things like this. And people are aware right that above ground testing is going on so the question about the end of civilization right and what do these weapons mean for humanity that's captured pretty early maybe not in popular culture but at least in, in academic culture by a guy named john hers who's kind of a classic realist thinker and says maybe the nation state doesn't have a purpose anymore especially the state aspect of that because if the fundamental purpose of the state is to protect its inhabitants from physical violent destruction with the advent of long-range bombers and intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear warheads the state can't do that anymore and then you move on to kind of people like harold laswell who are writing books on the garrison state so even if the state perseveres it will have control over every single aspect of your life economic civil private because the threat of nuclear annihilation will be so great that the government will be able to use this as a justification to tell people where they can live and what they can produce and what kind of job they need to have and you know everybody will be serving in the military right which is kind of for a country like america founded on anti-statism is the ultimate nightmare so this stuff is penetrating I and mean, even if right it's not the end of humanity right it's going to be very different possible civilization politically speaking so that didn't happen no what did happen was the cuban missile crisis which still is i think probably the closest we've ever come to nuclear war where that nightmare scenario comes to pass mm -hmm. what did that change so the nuclear crisis over Cuba changes a couple of things. I think first off, it increases the appreciation between Moscow and Washington of the importance of transparency. And there's a lot of stuff, even though we think of the Cuban Missile Crisis as a situation that was handled well and ultimately maybe perhaps was the United States victory, there's a lot of stuff that the decision makers on the day of, right, or the, the two weeks of the crisis, basically don't know. That is really important to know, like how many missiles are on the ground in Cuba and are they armed with nuclear warheads or not, right? And how many Russian submarines are in the area and do those have nuclear torpedoes? Turns out they did, right? So there's a lot of stuff that could have gone wrong if an invasion was declared or airstrikes were declared or if a submarine was depth charged that could have led to World War III. So it's a really close run thing because of this level of imperfect information. And I think the other thing it reveals 
and this is one of the paradoxes in international politics, is that there is such a thing as too much strength. So there was the belief in the early 1960s that there was a missile gap between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the belief on the United States part was that it was a gap unfavorable to the United States. Well, in fact, it was the opposite. The United States had a much greater military capacity in terms of its nuclear arsenal than the Soviet Union. The Soviets were aware of this. They were worried about intermediate nuclear forces in Europe, and they thought they had to balance that out by taking a big risk by trying to put missiles into Cuba, right? And so the fact of American strength, superior strength in nuclear weapons, had the effect of making the country much less secure. Whereas in when you think about conventional armaments, it's almost, well, how can conventional armaments, how can you ever have too much? I suppose you can have too much, right, if it leads to balancing alliances, coalitions of other countries against you. But nuclear weapons, right, this paradox of strength really comes to the fore and creates a kind of new appreciation in, in the minds of American policymakers for this. By this point, there are other countries who have these weapons. Britain has them. France mm-hmm. has them. I think by now, does Israel have one? By the do we, do we, we don't know. We yet. don't know if Israel still has them, right? Because they won't be the first to introduce them to the Middle East. So that's the official line anyway. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So one of the concerns for a long period about this, and you touched on it earlier when you talked about the Truman administration wanting to spread this technology, has been to limit the spread of this technology. Mm-hmm. When does non-proliferation become one of the goals of the nuclear age. Well, one quick kind of nuance or correction, right? Truman doesn't want to spread nuclear weapons all over the place. He wants to internationalize them. So he basically wants to take them out of the hands of states. At least this is the plan that Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, and, and Lilienthal and, and Bernard Baruch are trying to sell that ultimately doesn't work. So just to, who would have control of them under that scheme? Uh, basically a United Nations agency would have had control of them. This thing almost passes too, but basically it falls against Soviet skepticism of the idea. The United States says, well, we'll give up our nuclear weapons once we're sure that everybody else has relinquished all their nuclear material to this international agency, and then we'll go ahead, which seems like a sucker's bet to Joseph Stalin, right? Who's not the most trusting guy. Just ask some of his former generals. In any event, serious thinking about non-proliferation, at least from the perspective of the United States, and in terms of keeping non-proliferation on a diplomatic basis, which is to say the Iraq war is also about non-proliferation. You can pursue it in violent military means as well. Uh, But it really takes off under the Johnson, Lyndon Johnson administration. So Johnson comes to the presidency after the assassination of JFK in 1963. Kennedy had been especially worried about nuclear proliferation in China. Mao had said things like, well, you know, if a nuclear war does occur and half of humanity is wiped out, the other half will be socialist probably, and that'll be a jolly good thing, right? So that made people, including the Soviets, very nervous about the idea of what it meant for communist China to have its hands on a nuclear arsenal. And when Johnson comes to the presidency, shortly thereafter, the Congress passes a resolution calling basically for the president to become more involved in diplomatic international non-proliferation agreements. And Johnson signs on to this because you have to remember he's got a war in Vietnam that's escalating. He's got the Great Society program at home. These things are going to be very expensive. And so the idea of having to maintain a constant arms race with 
China, with the Soviet Union and others, this doesn't seem to be bearable. And also, it doesn't seem to be bearable for U.S. allies in Asia to have a nuclear adversary in China off their borders because the problem of, you know, will the United States actually protect us or not from China? So you finally do get, I think, the real catalyst for the non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, comes in 1967 when China tests pretty quickly its first thermonuclear, its first hydrogen bomb, only about two and a half years after it tests its first fission device, which is shocking because, A, they beat the French. The French had tested atomic fission device but hadn't yet mastered thermonuclear technology. China beats the French during the midst of the Cultural Revolution, no less, and this shocks a lot of people, no less because of certain racist assumptions at the time. And also, there is a summit between Soviet leaders and American leaders, a little-known summit that takes place shortly thereafter, in which one of the events is they kind of sit down and watch a movie together, and the movie is about Chinese attitudes towards nuclear weapons, where even though now the Soviets and the Americans think of them as unconventional, right, different, they're not just big artillery pieces. The movie te- seems to imply, right, that this is exactly right how the Chinese think about them, right? They're just weapons like any other weapons. They just have a bigger bang for your buck. And so this scares the bejesus out of McNamara and other kind of hard-headed people at this meeting. And you get agreement on anti-nuclear proliferation pretty shortly thereafter. How big a shift then to a new way of thinking about these weapons is the Reagan era, particularly what I think we still call the Star Wars program, but the idea that there is a way of doing this more aggressively than had been possible during the intervening years from Johnson to Reagan. Right. So Reagan is a bit of a paradox as well in and of himself, because on the one hand, he is somebody who in the first half of his presidency is very much a hardliner and seems to believe that you can end the Cold War by simply outspending the Soviets on both conventional and unconventional nuclear means of military technology, right? Just spend them into the ground. On the other hand, he's a nuclear abolitionist. Right? He fundamentally does not believe in the logic of mutually assured destruction, right? That the best way to survive the nuclear era is to have a strong enough second strike capability in your nuclear arsenal that your opponent knows it could not survive if it were to try to get a first strike off on you. He just thinks that that is immoral and horrific. And this is why he buys into the so-called Star Wars or strategic defense anti-ballistic missile technology so much. So that's the paradox of Reagan. And in his second term, after what is probably the closest the world gets to nuclear war, aside from the Cuban Missile Crisis, after the 1983 Abel Archer crisis, which isn't recognized as a crisis at the time, but this is the set of NATO war games that basically the KGB interprets as a very likely kind of faint, uh, a ruse covering up a NATO first strike against the Soviet Union. Once it's appreciated that the Soviets actually thought that this is what the United States was planning, and Reagan had never considered this, right, that the Soviets thought the United States was going to embark on a first strike, he basically has a holy cow moment, only I don't think he said cow, and recognizes, right, that, you know, nuclear war is a real possibility and is able, I think, for the first time to better put himself in the shoes of a policymaker or military general in Moscow and think about what the U.S. arsenal must look like from the other side of the the Iron Curtain. And this leads to some pretty remarkable deal-making between him and Gorbachev in his second term in terms of, well, for one thing, eliminating an entire class of nuclear missiles, the intermediate forces in, in Europe. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. After the end of the Cold War, books have been written that showed that there were not just two incidents, there were many moments where we really came a lot closer than we thought. And sometimes people were drunk, yeah. messages got garbled. When we look back on it now, should we? What's the correct response to thinking about the history of the Cold War? Should we think there, but for the grace of God, it, it was just luck that it was much closer to catastrophe than we appreciated at the time, or should we think that you know, we we worked our way through it? Here's the way I view nuclear weapons: they keep the world safer every single year until they will eventually kill us all. <laughs> and the way I view this is basically: nuclear weapons have, I think, had a tremendous deterrent effect on the great military powers of the world. I don't think you can explain the so-called long pieces, John Gaddis says, right after World War II, where you haven't had World War III or major warfare between the traditional military great powers of the world without reference to nuclear weapons. So in the aggregate sense, they keep us safe. On the other hand, I very much agree with analysts like Scott Sagan and Eric Schlosser, who wrote this terrifying and great book, Command and Control, who say the right that you can't, in a complex organization, like an organization like the U.S. Air Force, responsible for interdependent, highly complex technologies, right? And that's what nuclear weapons are, right? You not only have the warheads, you have the various launchers, the bombers, the submarines, the ground-based missile systems, you have the command, control, and communications hubs. There's so many chances for error at any one point in the whole system. And as those simple mistakes add up. They have nonlinear effects. Basically, this is complex systems theory 101. And so you do have the potential to blow yourself up. As Schlosser points out in Damascus, Arkansas in the 1980s, a guy trying to do maintenance work on a Minuteman missile drops a ratchet, drops a wrench, and it punctures a fuel line. All of a sudden you have fuel filling this missile silo, right? Gases, and eventually does explode and the warhead gets launched dozens of meters and it doesn't go off, right? One of the messages of Schlosser's book is the United States came close to blowing itself up numerous times during the Cold War. And presuming that you can't get these errors out of the system, you have to presume that every single year you have a small non-zero probability of something terrible happening by accident, which is why I say, right, these things will keep us safe until they, you know, have us eating our babies for breakfast one day. Where do you think we are now on that balance between the view that these things exist not to be used and what you described from the 60s anyway as the Chinese view that these are just very, very effective weapons? Has, has that shifted at all, including in the West, maybe even in the United States? Are people thinking about use again? Well, we're having kind of a renewed version of the old debate between massive retaliation versus flexible response right now. So the new U.S. nuclear posture review that came out in February of 2018 talks about the importance of modernizing U.S. nuclear forces, which a lot of people wouldn't 
argue with, right? You want them to be modern in part because you don't want accidental malfunctions leading to catastrophe. And also you need your adversary to be confident these, that your weapons will actually work as a deterrent. But then you also have this view that the United States nuclear arsenal right now is biased towards strategic weapons in the sense, right? Strategic meaning countervalue big bombs that would be targeted at an enemy's population centers and would be in the megaton range. And we don't have enough flexible response at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of smaller weapons, more along the lines of those used against Japan in World War II. So those in the kiloton range, like the B-61 that can be put on F-15s and, and the F-35 that you could use. So again, it seems like, well, if Russia thinks that it's in its interest to do nuclear saber rattling and maybe even do a limited tactical nuclear strike in Eastern Europe. And our choice is between just relinquishing and saying, okay, that's fine, versus launching megaton range hydrogen bombs against Russia and possibly ending civilization, right? That's not an acceptable choice. So you need to have nuclear weapons at a lower range of the spectrum. That's basically what the new nuclear posture review says. And on the one hand, that could be a deterrent, right? So if you believe that the United States has a lower threshold for using nuclear weapons because it can more credibly absorb the cost of using them because they're not so big, that might deter crises from breaking out. But if a crisis does break out, and the understanding is that the United States has weapons that it thinks of as quote-unquote usable, then you might get into a scenario, especially vis-a-vis -vis countries that have smaller nuclear arsenals, not Russia, of this dynamic that's often basically simply referred to as use them or lose them. Because the United States thinks its nuclear forces are, are usable and we have a very limited nuclear force, we got to use it right now or else it'll get taken out and our only chance of survival is using our nuclear forces as quickly as we possibly can, even if that's a slim chance, kind of gambling for resurrection type strategy. There are lots of nuclear weapons in the world, and they're in many more hands than they used to be. We don't know whether they're in the hands of some people we haven't even heard of yet. Mm. India has them. Pakistan has them. North Korea, famously, is mm. on the cusp. No, they got them. Iran. Doesn't have them, but... Is it a more dangerous world than the Cold War? I don't think so. I don't think it's a more dangerous world than the Cold War. If you look again at some of the rhetoric that was being thrown around in the 1960s, especially towards China, a lot of people I don't think realize that John F. Kennedy seriously considered approaching Soviet leaders about a joint military exercise to bomb Chinese nuclear facilities in the west of that country in the Lop Nur site where the testing facilities were located. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> that's a pretty high stakes game, especially when the United States already has military forces in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, where you could see this pretty quickly escalating to China targeting U.S. forces there, and then this turning into World War III, right? As I've already mentioned, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have the Able Archer exercises, you have the United States almost blowing itself up numerous times, as Schlosser pointed out. So I don't think we're in more dangerous times now than we are in the Cold War. That being said, I think the big danger here is, and I don't want to point fingers at you too much, David, but at one point when we were having this conversation, you you're talking about, do you view nuclear weapons as a deterrent, or could they possibly make mistakes? And you kind of frame that in terms of a Cold War question. It's not a Cold War question, right? It's a current events question. And I think we oftentimes think of this debate as somewhat historical. It is historical in that it should be informed by history, but it's very much contemporary, especially as the United States and Russia and China are all thinking about ways of modernizing their arsenals, making them more accurate, making them more protectable, making them more usable in a way. So 
again, this whole point that I made about nuclear weapons will keep us safe until they kill us all. I think the kill us all thing is a very low probability in any given year. But the problem with black swan events is you can't predict them. And we don't really have data for predicting nuclear use because it fortunately only happened two times. So our understanding, I think, of how a scenario where nuclear use would take place, how that would play out exactly, it's not that well defined, which makes anybody who tries to do social science for a living very nervous. (laughs) When I was a child, the end of the world scenario was the nuclear scenario. That was the thing that hovered over everyone's imaginations, including, you know, every now and then TV programs which would show us what it would be like. Mm -hmm. We now live in an age where, to use the slightly hideous contemporary phrase, there are lots of different existential risks out there, of which this is one. Catastrophic climate change is another. Bio-disasters, including bioengineering gone hideously wrong, is another. Killer robots, (laughs) the, the coming of, we laugh, but... So how much of a challenge does that pose, thinking about nuclear weapons... Once upon a time, it was the the catastrophic event that loomed over everything. And now it's kind of part of a menu. Yeah, it is part of a menu. And I would say that compared to something like climate change, which is not a black swan event, we know it's happening. We know that humans have inputs into it. There was just reports released the other day that told us that Arctic ice is melting three times faster than it was just a little bit ago. That's something that we know about, I think, with greater certainty, and we can say with much more confidence is going to be catastrophic for the human race unless we get on top of it. Maybe even then, maybe, we're not quite sure. Maybe it's it's too late. So it's true that in any situation where you have finite resources, you have to kind of consider what you're going to spend the majority of your time on. I think that there are, in terms of solutions, if you want to call it, maybe solutions is too ambitious, but mitigating factors that would cut against nuclear catastrophe in the form of purposeful or accidental use, there are simpler answers than there are to questions of climate change. People like Michael Gerson have called for nuclear no-first-use policies to be adopted by the United States, pointing to the country's massive conventional superiority and saying that that should be enough. The New START Treaty, which is not so new anymore because it was negotiated and finalized in 2010, is going to expire in 2021, uh, not that far away. And that's a big deal because one of the things New START does is maintain transparency between the United States and Russia in terms of one another's nuclear capabilities, right? That should be renewed. I think one of the biggest kind of tragedies of the return to great power politics, if you want to call it that, of Russia seizing Crimea and fomenting unrest in Ukraine and interfering in elections all over the place, is it's made it much harder to have substantive talks on nuclear issues that are of mutual interest to both the West and Russia. Nobody wins in a nuclear war. Right? There are really no winners. Trying to recognize the fact that you don't have to like each other, but you have a mutual interest in restraint and understanding in this dimension, Right, bringing that back, uh, even though it's hard to do after some of the events that started in 2014 and afterwards, that is crucial as well. And I actually think, despite the fact that I don't trust Donald Trump as far as I could throw a Volkswagen, I think talks with North Korea, even if the United States is getting the worst end of the deal, I think that's a good thing. Frankly, no less of a you know famous appeaser as Winston Churchill said you know making concessions from a position of strength is okay and which is what I think the United States is doing in North Korea so um, I would say that that is worth pursuing even if the United States is if you looked at it objectively getting a worse deal finally to go back to the beginning of the story when these weapons were first invented they were the cutting edge of technology this was the future 
Now, I don't know enough about how the technology works to know how much it has advanced since then. But this is nonetheless a relatively static technology. I mean, it does what it can mm. do, maybe on a bigger scale, maybe there's more flexibility. So you can come back on that. But yeah. the, the, the qualifier to that is other technologies have advanced at an incredible pace right. overtaking this, including the possibility, as I mentioned, of new kinds of artificial intelligence. How much should we be thinking about not this as an isolated technology, but what happens when it intersects with new ways of, for instance, decision-making? Right. The intersection is crucial, and that's exactly right. And there's an article I recommend by Kier Lieber and Daryl Press that came out last year called The New Era of Counterforce. Counterforce nuclear strategy is one that says we're going to not target your population centers, we're going to target your military installations, especially your nuclear forces. And the biggest revolution that's taken place in terms of nuclear technology, you're right, is not necessarily in terms of the destructiveness of the bombs. It is in terms of their accuracy and in terms of of sensory capabilities that can locate other sides' nuclear forces. So there's two basic ways, well, there's really three, but I'll talk about two basic ways you can protect your nuclear arsenal. One is concealment, so stealth bomber technology, submarine technology, basic camouflage. And the other is hardening, right? Just burying missile silos as deep as you can and surrounding them by concrete. And hardening is increasingly being rendered irrelevant by more accurate warheads, more accurate delivery systems. So it used to be the case that you had to launch numerous missiles at a single target if you wanted to take it out, because most of the missiles would fall too far outside the kill radius, to use a fun term, but at least half of them would, if not more. That margin of error has been shrunk significantly now. So now about 80% of all missiles launched from either nuclear submarines or air and ground-based launchers would hit their targets. So that means hardening is less effective. Sensory technology has also obviously come a huge way because of revolutions in computing technology and information communications technology. So it used to be, for example, that if you had a spy satellite or plane taking pictures of your opponent's nuclear sites, it could take a week or more for that data to get back to an analyst somewhere. You'd have to literally eject the canister and it would fall somewhere and a Navy ship or a bomber or something would pick it up. Whereas now you can transmit data in real time. And not only is the data being transmitted in real time, there's way more data than was ever had before. So this makes concealment a lot harder. And again, this feeds into the fear that you're going to get in any crisis into a use it or lose it position. If you can be confident that you can launch a fairly small number of missiles against your enemy's nuclear arsenal and that they will be accurate enough to explode where they will take those sites out. And not only right is accuracy important, but the more accurate a missile is, the less blast force you need to have, which reduces the threat from nuclear fallout, which means that you don't worry so much about collateral damage, which again lowers the threshold for nuclear use. So if you can be confident in your accuracy and you also be confident that you're pinpointing more of your enemy's sites because concealment is now less effective because of uh, sensor technology, right? This can again deter other countries from starting crises, but once a crisis dynamic opens up, it means that things can escalate really quickly between two nuclear armed states who are worried about right, a first strike capacity, basically rendering their deterrent ineffective. Thank you very much to Aaron. We will tweet links to further reading on that theme at tppodcast underscore. Our final talking politics guide will be to Turkey. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. So when does non-proliferation? You need to say that properly. 
when does non how do you say proliferation makes you bad <laughs> when does non proliferation proliferation okay right if you can be very confident that what did I, it just sounded like somebody from like California, like Southern Valley. Right? If you can be way confident, dude. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 